Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities, and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived, and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing. Well, hello and welcome. I'm Bill Glaskell, Director of Public Finance at the Volcker Alliance, and this is Special Briefing. It's produced by the Alliance and the Penn Institute for Urban Research and brought to you through generous contributions from the Century Foundation and members of the Penn IUR Board of Advisors. Our regular co-host Susan Wachter is away, so in her chair today for this special briefing is Susan's partner, Eugenie Birch. Hi, Jeannie. Morning, Bill. How are you doing? Just great. Hope everybody's doing well, too. Absolutely. A great uh, program today. Jeannie is co-director of PennIUR along with Susan, and she's doing double duty today as a co-host and expert, which she is, but more about that in a moment. And so the topic at hand today is the NYC recovery under a new mayor and new city council, and oh boy, is there plenty to talk about. New Mayor Eric Adams' $98.5 billion budget proposes the first cut in years, save for cops and corrections, I believe. And Adams also wants to shrink the city workforce by 10,000 through attritions and eliminating vacancies. But there are so many wild cards in the outlook. Number one, what's going to happen with tax revenues? Are they going to stay strong? 46% of city taxes come from property levies. And what if folks continue to work from home? NYC offices were only 29% occupied as of February 9th. That's according to the Castle Back to Work barometer. Other figures uh, show it as even lower. So will big office building owners seek tax breaks? Will personal income taxes stay strong if Wall Street fades? What happens after billions in federal COVID budget aid runs out in 2026? That's when it has to be spent. And of course, crime, jails, schools, inflation and union contracts that are coming up, and what's left, we hope at least, of COVID, which seems to be on the wane as we hold our session today. And as I said, that is a lot to consider in an hour. We're here to do just that. So our expert panel in order of appearance is former Independent Budget Office Director Ronnie Lowenstein. From the Partnership for New York, we have the CEO, Kathy Wild. Next up is my friend Dick Ravitch, former New York State Lieutenant Governor and one of the folks who saved the city from bankruptcy back in 1975. And finally, Ray McGuire, former city vice chairman and mayoral candidate. We're going to begin with Jeannie Birch, however. Jeannie quarterbacked a great dashboard and report on New York City at Penn IUR as part of the Recovering Cities Project. You can see the report on our website and the Penn IUR website, of course. Her team just did a new run of data, which will be available online along with the archived version of this special briefing. So Jeannie, your final report last fall was cautiously optimistic. Omicron is waning. People are slowly trickling back to the office. Subway ridership is rising. So what are your thoughts right now? Well, here we are. We took a look at the various indicators that we were monitoring. We did this, by the way, because we wanted to experience real time a historical event in New York City to be able to record for the future and also help people think about where we were. At any rate, we were looking at data on health, on fiscal health, the economy, quality of life. As you will see when you look at our material on the website, yes, Omicron was waning, but basically the daily COVID cases in January 2022 were a multiple of those in 2020. Now, of course, reporting's better today, so it's a little hard to gauge exactly the, the proportion of that. But deaths are also higher. Uh, in April 2020, there were 759. In January 2022, they were 125. The age and race differentials still exist. The good news is that 86% of New York City adults are fully vaccinated and 96% have one dose. 
we looked at employment. Again, the total jobs lost since uh, February 2020 is still down 7%, but that's a huge recovery since April 2020 when they were down 20%. But the arts and entertainment area, the hospitality areas are still weak relative to the nation and relative to what they were before. However, they're better than they were at the lowest. For example, in July 2020, arts and entertainment was down in terms of employment 56%. Today, they're down, I hate to say this only, but relative to what we had before, they're down 20%. In the accommodations area, the lowest was 71% down in July of 2020, and today it's only 30% down. Why is this important? Because there are certain tax revenues that are going to be uh, supporting this kind of activity. Work from home, Bill already discussed, is 29% at its peak, is 43% for 2022. Our residential vacancy rates are really good, relatively speaking, 3.9%. Office uses, in terms of physical occupancy, you already heard the vacancy rate, is about 15%. On crime, Shootings, murders, and transit crime are down uh, from where they were in February 2020. However, grand larceny is up. Pedestrian and transit counts in terms of ridership are half of what they were in 2020. So this is where we are today. It will be very interesting to hear our speakers reflect on where they think we're going tomorrow. Thank you. Thank you for the quick summation, Jeannie. So you're still cautiously optimistic and maybe a little less cautious on the optimism. Absolutely. I mean, things are obviously getting better, but they're not where they were where we need them to be. And our big sector of um, tourism is of concern. Absolutely. Well, you know, Ronnie Lowenstein recently retired just a couple of weeks ago from the New York City Independent Budget Office, which is the legislative analyst equivalent for New York City. And she certainly knows the numbers. Tell us, Ronnie, about what you saw on your on your way out the door. We have a, a new budget. What's your picture? Okay, first of all, thank you for inviting me. And I should start with a disclaimer. I'll be reporting on what IBO found in January, which of course was before the mayor put forward his plan yesterday. But the main takeaway in January was that the city's fiscal outlook, at least in the near term, is surprisingly strong. Begin by thinking back to uh, June of 2020. We had just gone through the first wave of the epidemic. The city lost more than 900,000 jobs. That's about a fifth of its labor force. Even though employment had begun to recover as the city's budget was being done, things looked particularly grim. And there were some analysts who were actually projecting budget gaps on the order of 6 to 8%. Let me start out in, in dollar terms, as high as $6 billion. And to put that into context, a $6 billion budget gap is 8% of the city's own source spending. So that's spending from taxes and fees and fines and that sorts of stuff. So those are huge. But last month when we published our report on the city's outlook, before any of the policy changes put forward yesterday were proposed, we projected a surplus for the current year, a considerable surplus for the current year, which when rolled into the following year, the year that we're about to enter, left budget gaps of about 1.4% for next year and $1.4 billion for next year and $1.6 billion for the following year, which are in the vicinity of 2% of city's own source spending, which is to say these were gaps that were generally lower than the city typically has and barely gaps at all, considering how much is in the city's reserves. So the question is, what happened? What happened to make those gaps so much smaller? Well, one thing that didn't happen was an economic, a robust economic recovery. Employment growth in the city has, as Jeannie pointed out, has very much lagged behind the rest of the U.S. Through the end of calendar 21, uh, the city had regained fewer than six out of 10 of the jobs that lost during the pandemic. And contrast that with the US, which has recovered more than nine out of 10 jobs. Moreover, the city's unemployment rate is more than double that of the US at this point. The gap numbers being so good are not a function of the recovery at all. So what did happen? So I think there are several factors. One, I think that has to be mentioned first is just the faster than expected vaccine development. If you recall, back in the spring of 20, we were anticipating 18 months to two years minimum to get a vaccine. And certainly that was very much better than expected. 
Next major factor, federal assistance. Two major federal programs for relief and recovery were adopted just at the beginning of calendar 21 that I'd like to highlight. The American Rescue Plan, which is ARPA, and the Coronavirus Response and Relief Act, which I don't think has a good acronym, but together they're providing the city with more than $13 billion in recovery and stimulus money, all of which has to be spent by the end of 25. I think it's worth noting, as long as we're talking about these funds, that some of these funds have been budgeted for recurring expenses that will go on well past the end of the federal assistance. By far the biggest of them is the 3K program, which if you recall was just a small trial program a few years ago, but has now become citywide. IBO estimates that it will cost something on the order of $800 million a year to maintain that program once the federal funds are gone. Okay, so there's the vaccine development, the federal assistance, tax revenues have held up far better than most analysts had expected. Yes, taxes in total are, are falling this year, but just way better than we had, certainly than IBO had anticipated. I'm looking specifically at the personal income and corporate income taxes. They've been bolstered by just an exceptional year on Wall Street. If you look at Securities Industry Association profits, they totaled $48 billion just through the third quarter, which without any results yet back from the fourth quarter, because they lagged considerably, would be one of the best years on record. So the booming Wall Street results uh, really bolstered personal income and corporate taxes. Another factor that bolstered income tax receipts, personal income tax receipts, was just the composition of the job losses. As Jeannie pointed out, the vast majority of the job losses were in sectors like leisure and hospitality and retail, which are among some of the city's very lowest paying industries. Conversely, some of the city's highest paying industries have done quite well. Even though they lost jobs last year, pay high wages. And since those wages comprise so much of the personal income tax base, it's helped bolster personal income tax receipts. Another tax that was much stronger than expected have been sales tax collections. One reason they've fared so well has been the federal transfer payments, you know, federal extended unemployment insurance, federal childcare credits all gave people more money to spend and spend it, they did locally in particular. And quite honestly, just the rapid rise in prices, inflation, which may not benefit most people, but in terms of the city fisc, you know, it really does help increase sales tax collections. And finally, um, the booming residential real estate market has bolstered the property transfer taxes, not the city's property tax itself, but the taxes that get levied when properties are bought and sold. So if you put that together, we had better than expected personal and corporate income taxes, better sales taxes, better real estate transfer taxes. And all of that together has been the gaps we're looking at were much smaller than expected. Moving on to, to the risks, however, usually when IBO puts out a forecast, we try to make sure that the risks are, are symmetric that their upside potential and downside risk, and somehow that all balances out. Well, that's not the case for the current IBO forecast. Right now, the vast majority of the risk is on the downside, and the city's fiscal outlook could be considerably worse than we're anticipating. And there are a couple of big and very obvious reasons for that. The first is, of course, COVID. You know, additional waves of the virus or whatever the virus will bring next could lead to additional business closings, further delay the return of tourists, particularly international tourists who tend to stay longer and spend more when they're here. Business travelers, I don't expect that business travel is going to look the same after COVID is a distant memory because so many businesses have found that doing meetings like this is very effective. The demand for remote work, I suspect that Kathy will be saying more about this, but certainly the pandemic really ex accelerated the trend, the ongoing trend towards working from home. 
but even a return to some sort of hybrid model, a mix of at home and at work, could have a major impact on the value of commercial property. And by extension, the city's property tax revenues, which make up the vast majority of our tax receipts. So, you know, all of that is at risk and an issue. The next issue to mention is labor contracts. By the end of this fiscal year, roughly half of the city's workers will be working without a contract. And by the end of next fiscal year, they will virtually all be working without a contract. And the city, at the peak of the pandemic and when things looked really bad, withdrew funds from the labor reserve, which are used in part to fund these contracts. So right now, the only funds within the labor reserve for the contracts are 1% increases, but for the third year of the contracts. So near term, there's really no money to be used for it, no money reserved for its use. And IBO estimates that if the city were to follow the same pattern it settled with last time, which was raises over three years of 2%, two and a quarter percent and 3%, it would cost the city roughly $500 million this year, rising to $2.5 billion in 2025. I think given the current rate of inflation, something on the order of 5%, depending on how you're measuring it, those numbers look kind of small. And so that's going to be a huge risk in terms of the budget balance. And the last thing I wanted to say is we've got a new mayor and a new speaker and a new city council that's mostly new. And all of these people were elected having made promises and with plans, with plans for things they want to do. And many of those plans are going to be costly. And that's the last thing I wanted you to keep in mind. So again, thank you very much. Thank you, Ronnie. And hold that thought. I want to remind everybody that you're taking part in special briefing co-hosted by the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR. And today's event and all of our past ones are on the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites. So without further ado, the big question on a lot of people's minds is, when are we going to go back to the office? A lot of people, well, bus drivers, Lingo and hospital workers, teachers, they haven't had the necessarily the, the luxury of, of work from home, but many of us had. So, Kathy Wild, you follow business trends, of course, in New York. Tell us, how is the city doing? When are people going to come back to the office and what does all this mean? Well, as I listen to Ronnie's projections from her perspective, I'm going to, there's a lot of redundancy in terms of the, but I'm going to try and from the business perspective encapsulate that. In terms of the the challenge right now of bringing people back to work, we've had three false starts over the last two years. I can remember in June of 2020 when we thought everybody was going to be back in the office by that Labor Day. So that didn't happen. We think this time, and the business community follows the science very carefully, we think this time that we're going to be, this is real. We're projecting that by the end of March, you'll have on the average weekday, 50% occupancy in terms of people back in the office. And from there, it's probably going to continue to increase. It's not going to be 100% anymore. I think that's pretty clear, but there's certainly a push by employers to bring people back and to try and make the office experience as meaningful as possible. Right now, 11% of the job postings in New York are for fully remote jobs, which is up from 4% pre-pandemic. So that's one measure of remote work. It is employee interests, particularly the young people and the suburbanites that are pushing for remote work, having to do with, you know, we've got the longest commute in the country at 42 minutes each way on average. So that's a big push and the young people haven't had the experience of the benefits of office culture being part of a team in-person team and so they are the most resistant to get back and it's no surprise that is the tech companies that are having the most people stay remote through all of this the concerns today that employers have about what the mayor and governor would like is mandating a return to the office one is the whole stress, anxiety, mental health. Another is the, the competition for talent and that this is a remote work is now a new benefit 
that many want to take. But the other is the public safety security issues, particularly around the subways. We've had a couple of terrible incidents of employees and it's not so much gun violence as mental health and fear of being pushed in front of a train. And this is this has created a real ripple effect building on already the un- instability that people are feeling after two years of basically a concentration on mortality in a way that we usually don't do. So remote work, I think, is we're going to gradually get people back. This is a moment of uncertainty. But I don't think that the fraction of people that continue to work remotely one day a week, two days a week or permanently is going to overall affect the New York economy. And we've proven that through the pandemic. In 2021, we had a $860 billion gross city product, our economic output, which was only $35 billion less than it was pre-pandemic in 2019. So we have a strong economy thanks to the ability of the financial services, professional services, technology, media to basically transfer to remote operations instantly and have that technology. And we are in a position in New York City that our key industries are the global leaders in the transition from the service economy to the digital economy, which has been accelerated during the COVID. And it puts us from an economic standpoint in a much stronger position than we've ever been. So from an economic standpoint, and that translates into the tax numbers that Ronnie was talking about from a fiscal standpoint, we don't see big challenges. We see big opportunities to continue the Hardship, the economic hardship of the pandemic fell on our brick and mortar economy, primarily small business. That's where we're still down 360,000 jobs. That's where people were not part of the digital economy and are making playing catch up ball and having a lot of difficulty. One note we get from Brooklyn, I've heard from the Brooklyn Chamber in particular, is the number of small black owned businesses that have closed and been replaced by white-owned businesses. So business activity is up, but we've had kind of a commercial gentrification in certain areas where people with the resources to take advantage of the opportunities that have been presented, like low commercial rents, have taken advantage of them, but that's not necessarily good for the fabric of our neighborhoods and our communities. In general, I have infinite confidence in the ability of the commercial real estate industry to reinvent itself. The office space people are paying their rents and that's not in so much trouble. Certainly the new officers are very successful and we've seen, you know, big success stories with all the new buildings going up. A lot of the older buildings will disappear and will be replaced probably as as Ronnie noted by residential because residential values are up over 11%. Rents in Manhattan are higher than they've ever been at an average asking rent of $3,400. So things on the real estate side, I don't think are a crisis. The area, the biggest challenge is in the retail area. And I think that's going to be the creativity of the real estate industry will begin to do this destination retail stuff and we'll see positive rebound there. So I'm optimistic. Where the business community sees the real threat is on the political front. And we had eight years of a mayor who specialized in dividing us and basically discouraging business investment in New York. Fortunately, we've seen a a change in terms of Mayor Adams' attitude toward business growth and economic investment, but we still have a state legislature that has an outsized role in what happens here. There are a lot of scary things that they have both done. For example, removing any incentive for investment in older regulated apartment buildings when they did the rent reforms is going to be a, a huge potential problem that do we want our private rental housing to look as bad as NYCHA housing? Well, one way to do it is to discourage investment by removing major capital improvement increases and apartment renovation increases. So that's a worry on that side. And again, it's a political decision because we can all count. We all know what the numbers are. Similarly, making New York City the highest taxed city in the country with the increase in personal income taxes, not because they needed the money, but because they wanted to show they could do it. 
and that sends a terrible message to investors and to business. And with the loss of salt, and it looks like there's very little chance that we'll get any relief on the loss of state and local tax deductibility, we're going to have a very heavy competitive situation with other states. The combination of remote work and tax increases, public safety issues, all of which have basically are being looked at and dealt with at this point through a political screen rather than historically the way New York City has handled crises has been through a pragmatic, let's all get together, let's fix us after, whether it was after 9-11 or during the fiscal crisis. There's a real worry in the business community that we're not going to be able to get back that practical spirit until it's too late. When there's a real crisis, when we're really broke, then we figure out how to do these things. And it's unfortunate that we may go through a few very tough years before we get there. So on that happy note, I'll close. Thank you, Kathy. One of those glass half full, glass half empty situations that we're in. And you're right, New Yorkers always come to the fore. New Yorkers have since the 19th century in dealing with crises, but do we have to wait until we're in this emergency situation? So that's really a good warning. Dick Ravitch, former Lieutenant Governor of New York and also around for the fiscal crisis a few decades ago. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, everyone. Look, uh, cities are the greatest socializing institution ever. New York City will come back. I'm not quite as optimistic as my friend Kathy, because I think it's going to take more time, but it will happen. I think the demographics will not be very different from what they are now. But let me say a couple of things that concern me about it. I think the mayor's proposed budget is a good step in the right direction, but he still is going to have deficits. And the problem that concerns me is. New Yorkers are the highest taxed people in the United States. And the amount of debt that the state of New York has per capita for every citizen of New York is greater than anywhere in the United States. And we have a legislature that is sensitive to the social problems in this society and wants to address them seriously. And I am very concerned about our inability to measure the decisions that individuals and business makes if there's another significant tax hike in New York. Last of all, let me say that my biggest concern is our subway system and our bus system, which is inadequately financed, and the only way they can meet their obligations and hopefully deal with increasing ridership, because right now their revenues are way off because of the decline in ridership. The only way they can do it is to get a revenue stream enacted by the legislature to create them another source of borrowing. Well, there is no other alternative. There's no fairy godmother. The federal government's money was generous, will be used up, and they will owe $3 billion to the Fed because they also drew down under the Fed's emergency program that was created by Kent Haishu. Whereas I'm very optimistic about New York's recovery, I am very concerned about two things, and then I'll finish. One is we have several million very poor people here who are in desperate need. We have homeless, more homeless than we've ever had before. We have a hell of a lot of poor people that are dependent in no small part on the education system. And providing them with the best is critically important to the future of New York and to the future of the United States. And that is contrasted with our fiscal stress that we have. So we are facing very interesting challenges. And the people participating in this, hopefully, will continue to be 
discussing this in other forms. And I just hope everybody recognizes the fundamental dilemma that we face. Well, Dick, you rescued the uh, transit system back in the 70s, so you certainly speak with authority here with regard to transit. What do you think about the infrastructure bill? That going to help? Oh, sure. I mean, the money that the MTA has received from the federal government is being spent right now. It's going to be exhausted in the next year. I do not believe, actually, I'm meeting with Polly Trottenberg tomorrow. I don't believe that there will be money for the MTA in the infrastructure bill per se. Oh, okay. Not good. All right. Well, I'm going to turn now to Ray McGuire, who is a former city vice chair, as well as a former mayoral candidate. You've struggled with these issues. Ray, where are you today on this? First of all, let me say thank you for having me. And let me echo some of the observations that have been made by my colleagues here, especially Ronnie, when she talked about where we are economically. So there are two lenses through which I'd like to kind of address the state of affairs in New York City. One is the economic lens to which there's been lots of conversation. And I agree that the budget that has been proposed so far is one that is a step in the right direction. I like the orientation towards efficiency. And I like the approach to trying to do as much as we can to the extent possible for putting what has been an extraordinary year from a tax standpoint into some kind of rainy day fund. And we saw that the governor has suggested that rather than the 4% or so that has historically gone into the rainy day fund, that that number is going to increase threefold to maybe somewhere in the 14 to 15%. So at least at the state level, we're planning for the future. The program to eliminate the gap and the mayor's approach to this has also been quite constructive. So I think as we move forward here on the economic front, we need to be mindful, as Ronnie has outlined, the components that have gotten us where we are. An extraordinary year on Wall Street, which results in the high taxpayers' revenue from personal income tax. And because of the windfall that we've gotten from the government, you see the same translation into retail tax revenue. We also have seen the windfall that we've gotten from the federal government when it comes to the injection of cash into both the city and the state budget. These are, in many ways, one-time events. So we shouldn't get so seduced by where we are in the immediate future. Longer term, as has been outlined, depending upon how well we spend the dollars that we have today, we need to be careful not to create these zombie programs that will last into the future, which we simply cannot finance. So we shouldn't spend beyond our means, notwithstanding the need to do that. As Kathy's pointed out, when it comes to, and that's the upside to the budget and the momentum that we have quite candidly, and we shouldn't get so overcommitted to that momentum because Kathy points out the challenges that we're having in small businesses. We should also outline and highlight the challenges that we have for tourism, which contributes a significant portion of the overall budget to the city the cultural institutions, Broadway, how are they faring? And we can see that each of them is now experiencing headwinds because of the limited number of tourists that we have coming. That will return at its own pace. There was reference to the office space. I guess I'm less bullish on the office space and what has been outlined. Let's be clear about this. Two thirds of the economy here comes from office workers. And the profile of the office workers The largest percentage of those are professional and business services. The second largest is finance and real estate, and then information and technology. Of the office sector, the office sector is kind of one out of every four jobs here. And that to which I'm referring are office employees who are millennial for the most part. They make more than $100,000, and they have exercised the option to work from home. You have other employees in New York City, the other two-thirds employees in New York City, who have to come to work every day. They may or may not contribute the way that they have historically because the dollars and inflation are putting a lot more pressure on their income than what we've seen historically. That's the economic lens. Now, what we've yet to address are the existential societal crisis that we now confront. And let me give you three. One is education. It cost us $27,000, $28,000 a year to educate a child in New York City. Yet when we open the school doors in the Bronx, often the parents have to come together to pool their resources to buy toilet paper and crayons. 
$28,000 a student. And oh, by the way, it cost us 430 some odd thousand dollars to keep an inmate at Rikers Island for a year. $27,000, $28,000. And oh, by the way, we rank 19th or 20th in the country in K through 12 education. So it seemed like that's an abject failure. Yet we put 400 and some odd thousand dollars into one inmate in deplorable conditions at Rikers Island. Education is a failure. Housing, if you go to some of the housing stock in NYCHA homes, the conditions are deplorable. I'm being generous. We've yet to address that in any large measure. And there was a reference that I think was made by Kathy about mental health. Well, we see the, the implications of the failure in education and the generational and systemic lack of an educated population that translates into lots of emotional challenges. And we've yet to come up with that. We reduce the number of beds for those who are emotionally challenged. We don't have enough wellness facilities around the city to be able to address that. And let's be mindful, let's not spend all of our time within the bubble of Manhattan, because what we've experienced in Manhattan in the stock market, the stock market since March of 2020 is up, I don't know, 80 some odd percent, but yet we're experiencing food insecurity at almost recession, depression kind of levels. So upside, yes, economically, existential crisis in the society, and we've yet to begin to in any way address them. Oh, thanks, Ray. Real issues. Uh, we'll be turning to you for some solutions here over this, particularly the existential, and also how you think inflation is going to affect the stock market. We had the booming stock market, but we know stock markets don't always boom. They also fall. So are we in a bubble or not? At any rate, I'm going to turn this back over to Bill. Thank you, Jeannie. A very stimulating conversation. Let me kick off with a question. I know it's been addressed partly, but Howard Chernick, who is kind of Mr. Dr. Real Estate at CUNY Baruch College, wants to know, what are the projections for commercial real estate values and the property tax levied on class four? I know that's a concern for everybody. Are these projections based on any model or future demand for office space? It's a jump ball. Ronnie, tell us, you grabbed it. Howard had asked a two-part question, the first part of which was about modeling. To answer that part first, generally speaking, our property tax forecast is based in part on a a full-fledged model of office demand. But two years ago, um, it was clear to us that wasn't working anymore. And so we made out-of-model adjustments. There are more details on our class four commercial property forecast in the report itself. But just looking at the tentative role that was recently, I guess, released in January, there's, I believe, don't quote me on it, an over 8% bounce from the last role in class four. It suggests that maybe the Department of Finance overshot when it made its, its estimates, but there may be others here who can speak more authoritatively to that. There are two reports to which I would refer you. One is the out-of-the-state comptroller, Tom DiNapoli, which does a pretty extensive study on the office sector in New York City, goes through in detail analysis of the implications of work from home and the demographics that are most impacted. The other is I would look at Howard Chernick's own work, which is a seminal piece written in November of 2021, which is a 25-page assessment in detail, model out quite effectively and efficiently, and it gives us some sense of the impact of work from home. It goes through detail, well done. The result of which is that the expectation is off of the peak that we experienced in 2021, where we had $172 billion in market value, the assessed value of which is 70 some odd billion dollars. It had a tremendous impact. It's the largest contributor to the budget of any line item. In class four is the office real estate, and they go through in detail what happens in cities across the country. And in specific, the comptroller looks at the largest office space that exists in the country, which is Midtown New York. I think the other person to go to on all of this is, of course, George Sweeting, who's now acting head of IBO and whose first research love is always in the property tax. For future reference, Kathy and Dick, do you have any feelings on this? Nothing different from what I expressed earlier. I'm very bullish about New York, but very worried about the conflict between the need 
that Ray pointed out about our education system and the tax level and debt level. You know, if you go back in time to the 60s when our society began to address the problems of poverty and employment in a serious way, we had a governor who devised all kinds of crazy ways of borrowing money, moral obligation bonds, and all the financial institutions were glad to participate in it. And it ended up with a crash in 75 that had nothing, I get asked this all the time, has nothing to do with the current situation. New York is in much sounder shape now, and I believe that Kathy's constituency is going to come back. I just don't know how fast. Well, let me ask another question. It came from Rich Sanford, who's the executive director of the Board of Ed Retirement System in New York City. And it's a two-part question, so I'm going to boil it down. Is Number one, as I mentioned at the beginning, the mayor wants to reduce the city headcount by about 10,000 after years of growth. There have already been significant departures, retirements, and dismissals across New York, New York City. How is this impacting the budget right now? And also, are we getting more productivity out of this? That is a follow-up question from him as well. Who would like to grab that? Maybe Ronnie? Well, by definition, if in fact you're producing the same services with fewer employees, productivity is up. That's what it means. I think that the recent emphasis on productivity and efficiency is terrific. But I think it you know, the city should always be thinking in this terms, in good times and bad, we should be seeking to produce the best product with the leanest possible employee base. We haven't thought that way for 20 years. This is going to be great. It's too often not seen that way. People start talking efficiency when times are rough, but very often the best time to make investments to increase productivity or when you've actually got some cash to put in. So yeah, it's refreshing. But do you think it really will be increased productivity or more overtime? It depends (laughs) if they call on the resources. What I think that the current administration is open to private sector input on how to achieve productivity. They've appointed an efficiency czar in Melanie Duraca, and she's reaching out and looking for real outside input into how they can do that adapting technology, et cetera, but using industrial practices. So, I mean, anybody who works with our bureaucracies know that they spend more time meeting with each other than actually delivering services. So I don't think we have to worry about losing too many people. Well, let me ask the follow-up question, which came up, the issue came up earlier too. This is an issue for state and local governments across the, the country. However you measure inflation, 5%, 7%, whatever the, the number turns out to be, on the one hand, it's pushing up sales tax revenues, especially all across the country. We dealt with that in our last special briefing. On the other hand, it's also throwing a monkey wrench perhaps into labor negotiations and labor costs across the country. So for New York, how does this come out? Under Mayor Bloomberg, as I recall, a lot of union contracts were just left to continue unrenewed and rolled over under the Tribor Amendment. How does the administration deal with this very thorny problem unless inflation suddenly vanishes in a heartbeat? I think Mayor Bloomberg stopped negotiating with the unions or the or vice versa, towards the end of his tenure, because the unions really had very little incentive to settle with him and were looking forward to dealing with a mayor that perhaps they had supported in the next election. That's not the case here. Eric Adams is going to be living with these folks for a minimum of four years. He can't really push this four years out to his successor. I offer an observation. Uh, Sure. I think the problems of poor, homelessness, crime, education, the necessity of addressing those, as I said earlier, is in conflict with the current tax and debt structure. And I think it's ultimately dependent on, if I may sound partisan, on electing people in Washington who will be committed to spend federal resources on addressing these problems because they're not unique to New York City. 
I was just asking Ray what your take is on this question and what Dick just raised. Dick is absolutely right. We are in conflict here. Remember where the stock market is traded during COVID and the incidents that it is maybe not even incidents, the culture, the climate of mental illness and poverty. We've done nothing to address that. Zero. Nothing. So the stock market has increased by 70 to 80 percent during that period. More mental health issues being played out on our streets. The carceral system operating in full swing. And there's nothing tangible to which we can look to say that we're addressing these societal existential crisis. That's number one. Number two, to get to your point about inflation. Remember, we're importing inflation because of the supply chain. For at least 10 years, the Federal Reserve has been trying to get to 2% inflation. And we've done it in specific quarters, but certainly it hasn't been anything that's been sustained. And today we're looking at four to five to 6% inflation. The question is for how long it will last. It is likely going to see the Fed adjust interest rates. Maybe there's two or three adjustments to interest rates so that we can slow a little bit of the, the speed of the economy. The person who is going to the gas pump or the grocery store is having a real impact because they're on a fixed salary for the most part. And you don't have the their wages have not been addressed. So wage stagnation up until this point. And the sense is that the labor negotiation is going to be hard because cost of living is up. And the employee base that is represented by labor and the unions have yet to catch up. So it's a problem that we're going to have to address. And I'm not certain we got the resources to do that. And the conflict that Dick references is a very real conflict. And unless we begin to address that, what we're attempting to do, fighting crime in the streets, it will be a headline, but it certainly is not going to be separate enough to do that. Ray, can I just say... I totally agree with your first point about that we haven't done anything to fix these chronic problems, but it's not because we haven't spent money. The amount of money that's been wasted on mental health and some of these other programs just because they're poorly constructed, what we haven't done is we haven't tapped the broader assets of the city and the communities to help us figure out what are practical solutions. Kathy, I completely agree with you. It cannot be. It simply cannot be that we spend $28,000 a year, and when you open a school year in the Bronx, the parents have to come together to buy toilet paper and crayons. That is gross inefficiency. Gross inefficiency. Hopefully, we have an opportunity to tap all the resources of our universities and of our business community and of our nonprofit infrastructure, who I think all came together during the pandemic and with each other and and developed solutions locally. We didn't wait for government to announce big spending programs on it. I think we've got to keep that same spirit going of everybody taking ownership of these issues and contributing to the solutions. I completely agree. We have not done that. The past administration essentially alienated the business community, so you didn't get the benefit of that input, which I think can be significant here. And unless we have public-private partnerships, be clear, we can't tax a way out of this. To Kathy's point, it's not amount of a dollar. We're going to spend more money. We spend a third of the budget in education to come up with results where we rank 19th to 20th in the country. We spend more. And look at New Jersey. Just You just go across the bridge. They have K through 12. They probably rank somewhere between one and two. How can it be that we spend almost twice as much to come up with results that are a 20th? That doesn't work. How sustainable is that? What do you think is going to happen in CVS and Walgreens? There's no hope. Agree. We're getting up to the top of the hour. So let me ask a question that's not a purely a, a city issue, which is about the MTA. Subways. Dick, Dick's true love. You know, you rebuilt the MTA. It's living on federal life support right now. The city contributes to the MTA and, and the, the subways especially. There are a lot of equity questions in having a functional mass transportation system connecting all of New York. What happens when the federal lifeline runs out or if congestion pricing, which is, you could argue whether it's a tax or a fee, it's, it's an extra cost. What happens when congestion pricing gets delayed yet again and the big federal check runs out and the federal loans have to be paid off? How is this system going to function? It's not. That's why I said they only have one possible source 
of money, and that is an additional revenue stream provided by the legislature, which means a tax, which is burdensome to New York, but they have no choice. That's the only way they can have access to capital. You have two really important agencies that need support, need restructuring. One is health and hospitals, which operates with an annual deficit and serves billions of New Yorkers, and the MTA, without which recovery in the office space, the office sector, will not happen. I would tend to agree. That's a very wise thought. We're down to our last minute or so. Jeannie, you have any, any closing thoughts on what you've learned about New York from looking at the other cities in the Recovery Cities Project and what New York can do better? I am very optimistic. I think that New York in the past has come from major crises in the past because of the leadership of the civic and business community, as well as dedicated political leaders. And things look grim today, but they've looked grimmer in the past. We had a wonderful talk by Ken Jackson, the historian, who reminded us of this terrible times that we've had in the past. So I think we have to really understand that if we get together, we have the leadership, we have the experience that we can get out of this mess that we're in, but we have to take some very brave steps to do so. Well, thanks so much, Jeannie. And thanks to all of you on the panel, Ronnie Lowenstein, Kathy Wilde, Dick Ravitch, and Ray McGuire. A very stimulating discussion. You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local government finances in the wake of COVID-19 and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.